following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. We're in a new series here in the letter to the Philippians, Joy to the Church, A Journey Through Philippians. Uh, We're going to be looking this morning at verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a churched person, uh, you're not familiar with the Bible, we are so glad to have you here. We hope you don't feel like you're in the wrong place. Uh, There's no place we'd rather you be than right here. If you're not familiar with a Bible, uh, you're going to want to be in order to follow along with what I'm about to do. Uh, What I seek to do every Sunday morning is to open up God's Word to a portion of Scripture and to explain it and to apply it to our hearts. Because we believe that the Bible doesn't just inform our minds, but it transforms our lives. And you're going to be helped to follow along to know that in the Bible, there are big numbers and little numbers. Now, these were not original to the Bible authors. They're not, uh, as Christians would say, inspired by God. And yet, they're, they're helpful ways to find your way around what can be a pretty big and intimidating book. They're kind of like addresses. So the big numbers you see are chapter numbers. And the little numbers you see are verse numbers. So if I reference uh, chapter 1, you're going to want to find the big number 1. And if I reference verse 24, you're going to look for the little number 24, and so on and so forth. This church, the church of Philippi, 
Uh, we read a couple weeks ago about how this church was born. You can read that backstory in Acts chapter 16. This was actually the first church on the continent of Europe. And this right now is about 10 years later, and Paul is not in Philippi anymore. He's way off in Rome, sitting in prison. And this is probably his last imprisonment. And he's sitting there awaiting his trial for his faith under the the imperial might of Caesar. And it's unclear what's going to happen to him, what his fate is going to be. And yet he is making the most of his time by writing letters to churches that he loves, including this one in Philippi, modern-day Greece. And here's the interesting thing. Paul is sitting there in prison, far away from his friends and the churches that he's helped to start, and yet he cannot contain his joy. And we're going to find out why this morning. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage and therefore of this message. Here's what I think is the main idea. Paul is overjoyed because the gospel is stronger than chains, sweeter than praise, and better than life. Paul is overjoyed because the gospel is stronger than chains, sweeter than praise, and better than life. And those are going to be the three points that we're going to step through this morning. So stronger than chains, we'll see that in verses 12 to 14. Sweeter than praise, we'll see that verses 15 through the middle of verse 18 and then better than life. That's the middle of verse 18 through verse 26. Stronger than chains, sweeter than praise, better than life. First, stronger than chains. In verses 9 to 11, which we looked at last week, Paul has just told the Philippian believers how he's praying for them. Well, now, starting in verse 12, he turns to addressing their fears I mean, maybe some in the church are questioning his wisdom, even his credibility, and letting himself get arrested. What what are you doing, Paul? If you were wise, you wouldn't be putting yourself in harm's way. You wouldn't let yourself get locked up so that you can't do any gospel ministry. I mean, surely some were thinking Paul's ministry is over. I mean, he was bearing great gospel fruit, but now all of a sudden, he's useless. And this is not, by the way, some distant celebrity pastor to the Philippian church. No, they know Paul. They love Paul. They're indebted to Paul. And so they're worried about his well-being in prison. And that's why he wastes no time in just confronting their fears head on. Verse 12, now I want you you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. In other words, cheer up, Philippians. This is not a dead end. This is not a detour. This is a divine strategy because I'm here. Because I'm in this prison cell, confined here, people are hearing the gospel that otherwise wouldn't be reached. 
And it's not like, we, we shouldn't just think this is happening kind of magically, automatically, as if the, the gospel is just seeping out of his prison cell by osmosis. No, Paul is being bold. You can't be around the guy without hearing about his great hope. He refers to the whole palace guard. This was like the Roman secret service, upwards of 9,000 soldiers. Now, this doesn't mean the fact that the whole palace guard has heard about Paul's message. This doesn't mean that Paul is having individual conversations with everyone, but it means that word about him is spreading. He is the talk of the prison complex. Word about him is spreading, and more specifically, word about the crucified and risen Jew that he won't stop talking about. Just take a moment here to insert yourself into verse 12, your own unique struggles and trials, and ask yourself, can you make this same claim? Look what Paul says there in verse 12. What has happened to me? Okay, pour your own problems into that phrase. What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And it's one of the most basic applications a preacher can make. Okay, this is like a preaching 101 application, but here we can't evade it. Do the non-believers in your life know that you belong to Jesus Christ? Do the non-believers in your life, neighbors, colleagues, people you regularly encounter, do they know that you're a Christian? If not, I, I, I'm not here to scold you. I would like to challenge you to fix that this week, just to correct that with one person this week. It could be a neighbor. It could be a colleague. Again, just someone you regularly see. But just imagine for a moment the collective gospel impact that could occur just this week if all of us let one more person know that we belong to Jesus and that they can too. And here's a suggestion for an inroad for, for how to go about that. And this comes straight from this passage. Use your hardships as a platform, as an excuse to share about your hope. Use your hardships as an excuse to share about your hope. Those non-believing friends can relate because they're also living in a fallen world, which means they're also well familiar with the sorrows and stresses of life. It's a guaranteed point of connection. But here's why I think we don't capitalize on that more often. Here's why I think we hesitate to share about our hardships. Because we're afraid that it's going to hurt Jesus's PR. We're afraid that if we open up and are really honest with lost people about how much we're struggling, the hard things going on in our lives, that they're going to conclude, well, doesn't seem like Jesus makes much of a difference. Deep down, they, they, we might think they're, they're going to just conclude, Jesus doesn't seem all that compelling, but friends, that's the wisdom of the world. That is not the way 
of God. The, the Bible makes zero promises that because we live for Jesus, we're, we're going to have happier things to report in our office, in our front yard, at our kids' game. We want happy things to report. The Bible doesn't promise. I mean, it promises we'll have the happiest thing to report, but it doesn't promise that we'll have ordinary happy things to report when it comes to health and jobs and stresses with children and all the rest. Jesus actually says that following him will in many ways make your life harder. It, it will give you some less happy things to report over the fence. But our goal our goal should not be for our lost friends to stare at our lives from a distance and think, wow, look how good their life is. Rather, we want them to say, look how good their God is. I mean, their God somehow sustains them and holds them up through some really hard things that don't make sense. But I, I want it to make sense. I, I want to learn what it is that enables them to endure through such pain? What is the secret behind their hope? But Paul says it's not just non-believers who are being affected. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. For, for the Roman pagans in Paul's orbit, his courage had become notable. We already saw that. His courage had become notable. But for the Christians, it had become contagious. The history of Christianity, friends, is the history of this dynamic. John Bunyan spent 12 years in a prison cell. Everyone assumed his fruitful ministry in England had screeched to a halt. He wasn't able to be out and about preaching the word there was nothing people thought, nothing he could do for the kingdom from behind bars. Except, it turns out, to write the second best-selling book of all time, The Pilgrim's Progress. Corey Tinboom, Johnny Erickson Tata, you can probably add other names here, countless believers who have suffered joyfully and in so doing have galvanized ordinary Christians like you and me, galvanized them to live with courage. And notice Paul reports in, in verse 14 that these other believers have become not just confident in general. Friends, we have to read our Bibles carefully. We can't just skim past little phrases like, in Christ or in the Lord, because it makes all the difference. Paul does not just say that these believers are generically confident. He specifically says they've become confident in the Lord. That is the kind of confidence that the evil one, the devil, wants to attack and undermine in your life. Frankly, he doesn't care if you're confident in other things. Satan is perfectly happy for you to be really, really confident in yourself. What he wants is for you to be losing confidence in God. These Christians looked at Paul and were, were energized in their confidence because they realized. See, it's, it's one thing for Paul to tell them Jesus is enough when he's 
free preaching in the marketplace. It's another thing for him to say it when he's wasting away in a Roman prison. See, these believers were galvanized because they looked at Paul's situation and realized it's true after all. The gospel is so much bigger than Roman chains. It must be worth it if he's willing to be chained for it. I mean, you want to know how you can, you can spot a Christian? Their life makes no sense unless Jesus died and rose again. A Christian is someone whose life makes no sense unless Jesus Christ died and then got up from the dead. And by the way, I, I imagine Paul's report here would have struck a special chord with the Philippians. Now, now why do I say that? Well, the Philippian church, if you remember from Acts chapter 16, of all churches, they knew that God does unexpected things in prisons. Can't you just imagine the, the Philippians listening to this letter as the jailer from Acts 16 rises to his feet? I've got I've to tell you about the scariest night of my life. I, I was working the prison. God sent an earthquake. The, the cells gave way. They, they were opened. Paul and Silas told me how I could be saved. And that night, my whole family, at that point, he, he might have uh, his own children, might have their own children. But at that point, that night, my whole family put our faith in Jesus Christ. And then, and then Lydia stands up and, and says, yes, yes, we were all here in my house praying. And all of a sudden, Paul and Silas knocked on that door and walked right into this very room. The Philippian believers knew that the gospel was stronger than chains. And Paul is reminding them of that again. Stronger than chains. Number two, sweeter than praise. The gospel is sweeter than than praise. Verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. We, we don't know the identity of these difficult people, uh, but they're not false teachers. We, we might read this quickly and think, well, these are the, the false teachers that he's going to confront in chapter 3. Well, no, the, the reason we know they're not false teachers is because Paul can rejoice that Christ is being preached. But even though they aren't heretics, they are headaches. <laughs> they're, they're at odds with Paul. They're antagonistic toward him. Maybe they're jealous of him. Whatever the situation, Paul is struggling with this kind of internal opposition, opposition from within the body of Christ, which is often the most painful of all. And he says that they're doing gospel ministry out of envy and rivalry, verse 15, selfish ambition, verse 17, hoping to stir up problems and trouble for Paul. And it's an issue, he says, that, that originates in their motives. That's the word he uses. But his perspective is surprising. Verse 18, but what does it matter? That's Paul's way of saying, who cares? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, 
Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. See, one thing that separates biblical Christianity from virtually every religious alternative is its persistent focus. Sometimes it even feels like a preoccupation with our interior lives. This is not to say that your faith is private, okay? We, we, we've looked at this before. Your faith is personal, yes, but it's not, not meant to be private. And yet, the Bible from beginning to end is very concerned with the state of our hearts, with our intentions, with our motives. For example, Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. You know what's interesting about that verse? It means you can serve the Lord and disobey him at the same time. Serving the Lord is not enough. How you do it matters to God. But here's the interesting thing, a lesson that arises right out of these verses in Philippians 1. As much as God cares about our interior motives, there's something he cares about more. Turn with me to, you can keep your finger in Philippians, uh, turn with me back two books to the book of Galatians. Turn backward to the letter to the Galatians. We're going to go from Philippians 1 back to Galatians 1. And as we read, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is Paul conveying the same thing as in Philippians 1? Okay, so we, so we just looked at Philippians 1.18. He's able to rejoice because whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. Is that what's going on in this passage? Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, compare these two passages. Philippians 1, Galatians 1. What is the difference? Well, in Philippians 1, Paul is overjoyed because even though the motives in view are wrong, the message that's getting out is right. But in Galatians 1, did you notice that there was no mention of motives? It's almost like the motives are irrelevant. For all we know, I mean, judgment of charity here. For all we know, the motives were fine. The one preaching in Galatians 1 could be perfectly sincere. They could be fine on the motive front, but Paul is not overjoyed. He's outraged because the message is wrong. Now, I grew up next to a wonderful Mormon family. I'm not sure I've ever met nicer people. I mean, if salvation was based on sincerity, if, if salvation being right with God was based on religious sincerity, they'd have a better chance than me. But I, unless something has happened since I spoke with them last, I am 
right with God. I am saved and they are lost. Now, now why is that? To someone who doesn't know the gospel, that sounds like a very prideful statement, but that just shows you don't yet understand the gospel. I'm saved and they're lost not because I'm more sincere, not because I'm more moral, not because I have stronger faith. No, it's for one simple reason. They have believed the wrong message. See, as much as Paul cared about right motives, he cared even more about the right gospel. When you talk to people about Jesus, what do your motives tend to be? I mean, for me, it's, it's just a very mixed bag. <laughs> Some motives are good, love for the lost, passion for God's glory, I think, I think those things genuinely exist in my heart, but, but some of it is not so good, right? Maybe some low-grade guilt, if I haven't done it in a while, maybe a desire to impress. It's also worth asking, what are your motives, not just when you speak about Jesus, what are your motives when you fail to speak about Jesus? For me, it, it's again, it's just kind of this ugly cocktail of fear of man and selfishness and apathy. And these are good diagnostic questions, but they're not the most important question. I mean, we should examine our heart. We, we should assess our motives. But the most important question is when you do share about Jesus, what gospel is getting shared? What, what parts of the message are you tempted ever so slightly to turn the volume down on, maybe to hit mute, maybe to edit out altogether. See, when it comes to this message, this gospel, you have to understand that there are two main components. There is bad news and there is good news, and you wouldn't have good news if there wasn't bad news. The bad news and this is true for every single person in this room, the bad news is that we have all tried to play God. He created us to know him, to enjoy him, to worship him, to live for him, but instead we have tried to replace him. We have sought to build our lives around things other than him, running our little world, calling the shots, living for ourselves. We have abandoned him and so we deserve to be abandoned ourselves forever. But the good news is that rather than judging us, in love, God has come on a rescue mission to save us. When there was nothing we could do to get back to him, he in Jesus came to us. He descended to earth to take on human flesh, to live a life of obedience, and then on the cross to be punished in the place of rebels, traitors, idolaters, just like me and just like you. But as I mentioned earlier, he didn't remain dead. He got up, he ascended to heaven, and one day he is going to return to rescue those and those only who have put their faith and their confidence in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that message, again, I'll be at the door after the service. There are tons of people in this room who would love to talk with you about how you Two can be made right with the God who loves you. One more thing before we move on to the third point. 
I am challenged and convicted by how unconcerned Paul is in this passage with his own reputation, the reputation of his own ministry. I mean, look at what's going on here in verses 15 to 17. There are professing believers out there who are on the loose, at large, questioning Paul's credibility, undermining his ministry, slandering his name, and yet he is just exuberant. See, so often suffering, if we're not careful, suffering makes us selfish. Suffering makes us selfish. It makes makes our hearts start to curve in on themselves. But Paul is able, despite prison, despite opposition, to look beyond himself. I mean, for him, there's only one overridingly relevant question, and it's not, how's my name faring out there? It's how is the reputation of Jesus? Yes, it would be nice if Paul enjoyed universal respect for his ministry. He doesn't welcome the opposition. He doesn't welcome the slander. But that's not where his focus is because it's not where his identity is. Stronger than chains, sweeter than praise. And number three, the gospel is better than life. Middle of verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance here doesn't necessarily mean physical release from prison. It means his ultimate vindication by God, whether in life or death. And Paul is confident that this is going to come about through two particular means— Your prayers, verse 19, and also in verse 19, God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You could draw a little triangle in your Bible next to verse 19. God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is a snapshot of God's Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of the eternal Trinity working together to provide everything Paul needs. And notice, God doesn't only ordain the end that Paul will be delivered, but also the means that the Philippians' prayers will directly affect that outcome. This is so important to understand. This is not just interesting, advanced Christianity. This is a rock to stand on when everything else in your life gives way. Yes, God is sovereign. We love to celebrate that here. God's sovereignty is not a weapon for fighting. It is a pillow to place our head on at the end of the day. Yes, God is sovereign. And yet, he he doesn't do an end run around our obedience. His sovereignty does not mean that he will do an end run around our obedience. His sovereignty almost always is him working through our obedience to accomplish his purposes. In other words, sovereignty doesn't make your participation redundant. It makes it meaningful. I like how Sam Storms captures this truth. Quote, Never presume God will grant you apart from prayer what he has ordained to grant you only by means of prayer. That's deep, so I'll read it again. 
And if you don't understand it, even after I've read it a second time, then it's a great opportunity for you to talk to someone this week in this church about it and try to figure out what it means together. And if you two can't figure it out, email me. (laughs) Never presume God will grant you apart from prayer what he has ordained to grant you only by means of prayer. And as a result of the Philippians' prayers and the Spirit's help, Paul says, quote, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. This is why the call to worship at the beginning of the service was Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers who had plotted to kill him and then realized, ah, might as well get something out of this. Let's sell him into slavery. Fast forward, Joseph is elevated to become prime minister of Egypt. He enacts this massive famine relief plan. He ends up saving his own family, including these brothers who had betrayed him. And he's face to face with them in the very last chapter of the book of Genesis. And here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, this is a familiar verse but I want you to see something in it that you may have not noticed before. I want you to see that it doesn't quite say what many of us assume it does. Look carefully. Genesis 50, 20. It's on the front, well, not the front, but page two or three or four of your service guide. Genesis 50, verse 20. Look what it says. You intended to harm me You intended to harm me, but God used it for good. No. That is too weak a word. That is too tame of a word. God did not just turn it for good or use it for good. He meant it for good. He's not a plan B God who's just a really good first responder. He choreographs things from beginning to end, from start to finish for his glory and your good with just as much intention as the brothers gave to selling Joseph into slavery, God gave to causing his ultimate vindication and the saving of these many lives. But just because Paul is resting in the sovereign wisdom of God doesn't mean here in Philippians 1 that he's not struggling with fear. Don't assume Paul is this kind of superhero who doesn't experience normal human emotions and struggles. He's afraid. He needs courage. How do we know that? Because of verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul's supreme concern is not that he will be safe. He wants to be safe. Everyone in their right mind wants to be safe. But Paul's overriding concern is not safety. It's that he will remain faithful. Notice, he's not minimizing his hardship either. 
As I said, he's not this superhero who's impervious to hardship. He is not okay. And yet, he's somehow okay. Whatever happens, whether it goes well for him or not in this life, he trusts the Lord is going to do something with it. The apostle faced fear just like we do, and he needed courage just like we do. But he was so captivated by the bigness of Jesus, by the grandeur and the glory of Jesus, that his own physical well-being had shrunk to size. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, this is a famous verse, but let's first admit it's oddly phrased. What exactly does it mean to live is Christ? I mean, we understand to live for Christ. What does it mean to live is Christ? When I was growing up, there were these popular t-shirts, usually with, you know, in the realm of sports that said something like, soccer is life, the rest is just details. That's basically what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ is life. The rest is just details. The the majesty of Jesus so saturates Paul, so defines Paul, that he's able to say to another church, the Colossians, just in chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, Christ is your life. And then later in the chapter, Christ is all. That is, he is supreme over everything. Now, if you had two assignments, one, to write a summary of your life, and two, to do so honestly, would you fill in the blank the way Paul does? How would you accurately fill in the blank? For to me, to live is blank. For to me, to to live is retirement. To live is entertainment. To live is leisure. To live is family. To live is career. To live is academic success. To live is ministry. What is your dominant concern? Your driving ambition, the the, the, the organizing principle of your heart, in life. For Paul, it was clear. This was the thing in the center of his solar system around which everything else orbited. For to me, to live is Christ. And Paul can say to live is Christ because his ambition is channeled toward making much of Jesus. It's channeled toward gospel ministry. But then he can turn on a dime and say, and to die is gain because that ministry is not ultimate. That ministry is important, but it's not ultimate. Only Jesus is ultimate. I mean, what can you do with a Christian like this? Seriously, you know how it worked in the palace guard in the first century? Prisoners like Paul would have been chained to an individual sentry, an individual soldier. It's like, Paul, we're going to chain you to a Roman guard. Great, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. You know, Paul, we're going to kill you. Great, I'll go to Jesus. This is why Justin Martyr in the first century said, you can kill us, but you can't harm us. 
The worst thing you can throw at us will only promote us into the presence of our king and friend. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Christ, then this means that you are in the ultimate win-win situation. If you live, you get to glorify Christ. If you die, you get to go be with Christ. In fact, when you die, you will be more alive than ever, which means that if your hope, if your trust is in Christ, then your worst case future scenario is resurrection and everlasting life. As Paul put it, to whet the Corinthians' appetite, and I know I'm going to a lot of his other letters this morning, but that's just because the, the trust me, I spared you many other cross-references. It's a, it's the, what, we're, what we're looking at here in Philippians 1 is one of Paul's most dominant themes, and so it shows up throughout the New Testament. But he whets the Corinthians' appetite for their future home, for the fact that death is gain by saying to them, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. And later in that same letter, chapter 13, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know only in part, then I shall know him fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul is just so enamored with King Jesus that even the prospect of death has taken on a certain appeal. Verse 22, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor. That is ministry for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound. There's that word again from last week's passage. Will abound on account of me. So this is Paul's great dilemma. Will he be acquitted in his imperial trial or will he be executed? He seems pretty confident that he's going to be acquitted and be able to continue in ministry. But, but this is not just some kind of perfunctory way of speaking. This is real existential angst. This is a wrestling match internally going on in Paul's soul. And there's much we can learn from it. I'll just make three simple observations. So these, these are three subpoints that we can draw from Paul's dilemma here. First, to die in Christ is to be instantly with Christ. We can't miss that. To die in Christ is to instantly be with Christ. Look again at the way he phrases verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ. There's only two options, to stay and be apart from Christ or to depart and be with him. This is deeply problematic for any notion of purgatory. Paul's 
assumption is that departing from life is equivalent to being with Christ. There is no middle ground, no intermediate stage or state between the departing from and the being with. He says a similar thing to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. It's one or the other. A person is either away from the Lord while at home in the body or away from the body because they're finally at home with the Lord. Those of you who are fearful of death, you you read a passage like this and you're like, man, I wish I felt this way, but I don't. I am not there. Those of you who have lost loved ones to death, take heart. They, if they died in Christ, if they died trusting him, They are now with him in glory. Their bodies have not yet been raised, but their souls are in the unshielded presence of their Redeemer. This life is so fragile, this life is so short, and yet our hope is utterly sure. 150 years ago, a a young Scottish man named John Patton was preparing to take the gospel as a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And one aging Christian in his church was not very happy about this plan. He was aghast, and he tried to dissuade Patton, not because he didn't love Jesus, but because this this older man didn't want Patton to foolishly throw away his life. He, he, He said to the young Patton, don't go, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. To die in Christ, however it happens, is to be instantly with Christ. Number two, number two, there is something even more desirable than heaven. There is something even more desirable than all the benefits of heaven. Again, look at verse 23. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be in heaven. No, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul doesn't even mention heaven. Christ is the shorthand, the stand-in for this place of eternal glory. This is one of the main things that distinguishes a true believer from a false one. It's not that the true believer doesn't sin, doesn't struggle, has everything figured out. No, it's that the true believer is aiming for more than just an afterlife. The, the, the true believer is not just seeking the benefits of heaven. They are looking forward to being reunited with, with loved ones. They are looking forward to enjoying perfect health and all the resources and recreation that the, that the universe, that the mind of God could possibly offer They're looking forward to being free from sin and living in eternal bliss and joy, but none of it compares to the fact that they are going to finally 
get God. Yes, they want the benefits of heaven, but what they desire most is the God of heaven. I just quoted the the missionary John Patton. Well, 250 years earlier, same country, Scotland, another minister named Samuel Rutherford captured this strikingly in a prayer. O Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Now, he's speaking metaphorically, he's speaking poetically, but, but the point is important. If you struggle to feel this way, though, if you hear this and it, it sounds great and glorious, but you just can't get yourself there, you can imagine a heaven without Christ. You would be glad to go to a heaven without Christ. What you need to do this week? Well, first, let me say, there is a chance that means you're not a true Christian and that you've only embraced the gospel for the benefits it would give you and not for the fact that you can be reconciled to know and enjoy God. So you should examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. But if you're a Christian and you're just struggling with this idea of craving God, hungering for God above all things, then don't waste time. This week, find another person in this church and meet up with them to talk together about how you can stir your affections for Jesus. I mean, first, ask the Holy Spirit to stir your affections for Jesus. Ask him that he would, he would help you to, to know Jesus more intimately and experience him more deeply. He loves to answer that prayer, but then ask the other member of this church to meet up with you, maybe read a book with you, so that you would both be forced to stare afresh, to stare afresh at Jesus, his life, his character, his promises, his gospel, until you see something so compelling, something so captivating, that the things of earth begin to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Something, there's something even more desirable than heaven. And number three, Paul's priority, Paul's priority is what's best for others. Despite his personal desire, Paul's priority is what's best for others. Again, look at verse 23. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you, for you, that I remain in the body. Same thing in verse 25. He says he'll continue with them for a specific reason, for your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, Paul is fixated on what will be best for the Philippians. The way he evaluates himself, his circumstances, his situation, his hopes, it is all bound up with the well-being of other Christians. Is this how you process life? I mean, how often are you sorting through various options, desires, ambitions, 
and, and the irrepressible question that, that you can't keep down. It's like trying to keep a beach ball under the surface of the water. The, the question that you can't ignore as you are evaluating your life is, okay, but what's going to be best for the church? What's going to be best for the church? What, what would happen? What, what would change in your life if that became a more prominent frame of reference? Mark Dever tells a story. This happened many, many years ago. He, he knew a young believer who was just a dynamic personality, strong Christian, powerhouse discipler and evangelist. And yet this guy wouldn't join a church. And so finally, Mark just put the question to him, but brother, I'm so edified and helped by so much of your ministry, why haven't you joined up with the church? To which the young guy responded, because honestly, they would slow me down. And it was probably true. So Mark responded and he said, that that may be, that may well be that, that they would slow you down, but have you ever considered that you might be able to help speed them up? The way we're meant to evaluate our lives is not with ourselves at the center of existence. Our Christian life is not primarily about us. Oh, River City, I want so much. As your pastor, as we're in, in, in this young season as a new church, I want us to take our marching orders from passages like this, to live and to minister and to fellowship and to witness as if living is Christ and dying is gain. Because if we don't get that, then what are we doing? We have nothing to offer the world that they don't already have. But we do have Christ, and so let's not withhold him. Paul is overjoyed. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison cell, overjoyed, because the gospel is stronger than chains. It is sweeter than praise, and it's better than life. And you too can be overjoyed this week. Whatever your circumstances are, whatever you're sitting in, you can be overjoyed this week because you have an unstoppable gospel and you have an unrivaled and beautiful king. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we so often want the kingdom more than the king. We so often want the benefits of heaven more than the God of heaven. But, O oh Lord, we pray that you would foster among us a culture of, in our church that loves to celebrate and loves to desire together, to stoke our desire together for the God who is the greatest treasure and most satisfying portion that we will ever find. Help us, Lord, to live in light of that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.